Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Uh, We have been talking about the treasures of Christian fanatics, people who are willing to put all their eggs in one basket, to put all their eggs in the gospel basket. People who are willing to be devoted to Christ as, as their pre- preeminent devotion. People who, as Paul says, have been promised to one husband in Christ and that we have a sincere and pure devotion. And instead of sort of browbeating or telling you that you should be a Christian fanatic or that it's the right thing to do, all of which is probably true, what we're doing instead is we're talking about the treasures that really are only or are especially noticeable for those who are, in fact, putting all their eggs in one basket, for those who are devoted to Christ. So our salvation is assured. We will be in heaven uh, thanks to the blood of Christ. But depending on the degree to which you devote yourself and stay devoted throughout your life to the Lord is the degree to which here on this earth you will experience some of these treasures. Now, all of these treasures will be true for all of us in heaven. The Lord has promised that some of us will be rescued as from a fire. So even if we've wasted our life in a sense, he will still grab us and redeem us and ensure that nothing is wasted in that sense. But it is worthwhile to ask yourself, what would life look like? What would be the benefit? You know, as I count the cost to devoting myself to Jesus, what's really the benefit? And so we're going through the 10 treasures of the Christian fanatic to kind of look at those things. The first week we talked about a purpose of delight, that all fanaticism gives you a purpose. Anybody who's fanatical about anything has a purpose in life, and it's that thing. But in the case of God, it's really unique in the purpose that God has given us, that we serve this amazing God who's so amazing that the thing that he gives us is a purpose of enjoying him. He created us to enjoy him, to delight in him. And because he created us that way, contrary to what we sometimes fear or think or feel, it turns out that delighting in God is the thing that we are best suited to do. Now, this is true of everyone, whether they're a believer or not. And I think Solomon sort of talks about the dilemma that happens for every single human being in the world when they're suited to enjoy God, but they're unable to connect with him. He says that there's a burden upon man, and that burden is that eternity has been placed in the hearts of men, but we cannot comprehend it. And I think part of what he means there is that within all of us, there's this thing that I call the soul. I I think that might be what is meant by the soul, but I don't know that for sure. Scripture is not completely clear about that. But there's this thing that's in us, which which is seeking to delight in God, which is constantly looking for this God to delight in. And, and that's true of all of us. But for the believer, we have this, this treasure of knowing what our purpose is. And for the fanatic, we have this treasure of knowing every moment of our life is about that purpose, that, that we can see a meaning behind everything that happens, every pain, every sorrow, every defeat, every victory, all comes back to finding our way to delight in God. And Christ has built the connection so that it is something we, in fact, not only can do, but as a mentor, best suited to do. So that's one benefit is knowing that purpose, living our life upon that purpose. The second benefit we talked about last week is an identity of substance, learning and finding out that we are in fact made new at the cross. We talked about our life is in Christ tonight. We sang that song. 
And Paul says there that, that what happened is we were made new at the cross. We were resurrected with Jesus. Our old self, which was just a mess of appetites and desires, behaviors and thoughts, the ways we presented ourselves to the world was all we had. But now that self has died and we've been replaced. We've been given a new self that's deeper to find out that our identity is somehow more than the conflicting and confusing mess of ways we present ourselves is a huge benefit. It's a huge treasure. And here again, this is true, this new identity is true of all believers, but only those who are willing to believe God, to put it, all, all, our, all our eggs in that God basket really have a chance of seeing and believing that and living a life which represents that. That, that, that treasure which Paul says is in a clay jar can shine forth from those to the degree we're devoted and compelled by the love of Christ. And that leads us to the third treasure tonight, which we're going to talk about. It's a stability. And as we've done with each of them, I give you first the, the idea, and then I give you an ellipsis telling you there's more to this. And we're going to expose what the more is, but stability. Stability may not immediately strike you as a treasure, but boy, is it ever. I mean, think about what it would be like to live a life of such integrity and stability, a life which, which had such a, a consistent theme running through it, that you didn't feel at the mercy of your emotions and at the mercy of other people around you. Think about our world today. I, you know, I know I'm, I'm only 54, and yet in my 54 years, I've lived long enough to watch our culture shift radically in a number of different directions. And what's right 20 years ago is wrong today, and what's wrong today might be right in 20 years from now. Those who are younger may not believe that. You, you feel that maybe there's a consistency, but just give it time, and you'll discover that the world shifts. And it shifts constantly. And things are kind of pulling us to and fro. Think about all the, all the scrambling we do to kind of find the key to life, to success, to happiness, to our marriage, to our families, to our children, to our, to our financial woes. All the scrambling we do to find it and how constantly it changes. Even something as simple as, as, as being healthy. I read one article and it says, drink 64 ounces of water a day. And I read another article which says, you don't need to drink that water at all. Well, at all. You do need to drink some water. That's pretty consistent. I see other, you know, I see things which say, exercise this much. And then I see things which say, no, you only exercise this much. And, and, and it's just, it's everywhere. There's so many ideas out there. There's so many convictions out there. And we want to be people of conviction. And we want to be people of integrity. And we want to be people of stability who aren't thrown by every circumstance that happens or every person that comes our way with a new idea. We want to be able to have some peace and stability. And the Christian fanatic has that. And here's why. We're going to talk about why. But as we get into the why tonight, here's one thing I want to tell you. Talking about a purpose of delight is, is pretty much, I think it's incredibly true and it's a hope and it's a, and it's a truth which is so much better than we can believe, but it's, it's easy to preach about because who doesn't want that? Talking about an identity of substance may be a little harder for us to believe, but even that, it's, it's hard to argue with. And these actually fit within our, our current culture. We understand the value of delight and we understand the value of joy and we understand the value of knowing who you are. Our culture desperately seeks that. Stability is something our culture wants, but as I share to you tonight where that stability comes from, you may, for the first time in this series, begin to ask yourself if this really is worth putting all your eggs in one basket. 
And not because it isn't. I hope to show you tonight that it absolutely is. I hope to show you tonight that this is indeed a treasure. But as I share with you where this treasure comes from, you may for the first time feel that it pushes against the culture and the worldview in which we live. And that's okay. Because that's part of the actual point of the stability is the ability to stand firm even when the rest of the world isn't quite in the same page. As the world changes its views, how do we stand still? So let's walk through this a little bit. Let's see if we can kind of bring this together tonight. First, just to talk about stability in and of itself. There's a verse in Ephesians, which you may have seen if you've been around Focus Church for a while, if you've uh, been to any of our Sunday nights, if you've been to some of our studies in our groups, you may have seen this verse because it comes up a lot. And this passage in Ephesians 4 comes up a lot because in Ephesians 4, Paul really breaks down what we understand about discipleship. The reason that we do our focus groups is because Paul breaks down in these verses the idea of many-to-many discipleship. The idea that we're discipled by the grace that we share with one another, by the love we share with one another, by the challenges we give each other, by the support we give each other to stand firm, by the by the faith that we carry for each other. And so we believe that's where discipleship happens in the earlier in Ephesians 4 kind of lays that out. But in these passages we're going to look at tonight in these verses, verses 14 and 15, what we see is not the how-to that we see earlier, but we see this picture of what a community of disciples would look like. And we see a picture of what a disciple would look like. And it's a generous and gracious and beautiful, and I think extremely encouraging picture. And I think it's something we all want to be. And this is what he says a disciple looks like as he is discipled. He says, there, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. He says, Life is sometimes like you're on a boat. And every wind rocks you back and forth and every wave pushes you here and there. And sometimes you're shipwrecked and sometimes you feel like you're going to drown. And he says, as we go through life, this is what it is to be like an infant. You're vulnerable to every wind and every wave. And when someone is not a disciple, they also are vulnerable to every wind and wave of teaching. That there are people out there who in fact are deceitful. There are people who lie to you. Sometimes we forget this, but really it's an obvious point, isn't it? We all know people lie. It would not, I I stay out of politics, but it would not even be controversial to just say George Santos at this moment. Because we all know (laughs) he, he lies all the time. People are deceitful and sometimes people scheme. Sometimes people tell you untruths because they want to, they want to prop up their power. They want to lure you to their side. They want your money or they want your, your respect unearned. They want the status that comes. Sometimes they're just vile and hateful people and they just want to make your life miserable. And Paul says a disciple, one of the beauties of a disciple is he's not pulled and pushed by all of this. He's not led everywhere. He's able to ride the storm out and keep on true course. There is a real relief to that. There's a, there's a great relief to not have to wonder, can I trust this person? Can I trust that person? Should I go after this? If I go after that, I'm gonna, I did this before and I got disappointed. I trusted this before and I, and I got led astray. I feel like I got yanked around. What a relief to be a disciple. 
who's been discipled and have a stability in that. To have convictions that are firm and not easily swayed. To have confidence in the right things and not be gullible or fooled. And yet, sometimes we think of people who have strong convictions as people who are also rigid and mean. But notice where this verse goes on to say, it says, instead of being blown here and there, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We have this idea of Christ being our leader, and he's consistent and he's constant. And because of that, we're able then to be both full of confidence and conviction and be loving. In fact, I would submit that it's the people who are threatened by those who disagree with them because their convictions are fragile that tend to be the most rigid and harsh. I would submit the people who are unwilling to even discuss with you your thinks, thoughts and feelings and opinions, the people who hammer down at any moment of disagreement or any correction in their own lives are not people who are truly confident in their convictions. Most of the time, they're people who are so threatened by your disagreement that they have to clamp down for their own preservation. There's another group of people, and that's the person who's maniacally confident in all things. That's also not someone likely to speak the truth in love. What I want to do is I want to walk through 2 Timothy tonight. Not all of it, just one chapter, just one section. I just want to look at a little bit of 2 Timothy to learn about stability, to see where it comes from, to see how we become these people who can have such conviction and yet be loving in our conviction, to be these people who can speak the truth in love and know what the truth is and have a confidence that isn't yanked around by every new thought and every persuasive and charismatic leader. So I'm going to look at 2 Timothy because the context of 2 Timothy speaks exactly to this and, in many ways, is similar to the context in which many of us live our lives, in some ways. So let's talk just a little bit about the context of 2 Timothy before we look at this passage. So Timothy is a, a young man who traveled with Paul for many years. So Paul, let's start with Paul. Paul is, is the greatest early missionary, maybe the greatest missionary that the world has known. Paul, in his day, basically spread the gospel to all the parts of the world that it was conceivable and possible for him to reach at his time. And as he spread the gospel, he went places and he would build up churches. He would plant churches and build up communities of people who discipled each other with this many-to-many -many discipleship. And he would have leaders that would help guide people in that discipleship. And he had a special focus because he believed that God called him to this special focus to reach out and expand the gospel beyond just the, the Israelites and, and, and to understand that the God of the Israelites is the God of all people. And that the Messiah, the hero of the Israelites, is the Messiah of all people. And so Paul began, even though he was a, a Jew, a very zealous Jew, he saw his calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he began to build churches all over the world. And as he did, there were certain people who traveled with him. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, was a very faithful friend of Paul's who traveled with him all the time. We see a bunch of people. And then one of them is Timothy. Timothy's a young man. He joins Paul. Paul speaks of him as his son. This is sort of the relationship they have. And Paul and Timothy travel, and they travel a lot, and they plant a lot of churches together. And then one day, Paul spends, well, Paul builds a church called, a uh, church in Ephesus. And if you've seen the book called Ephesians in the New Testament, that's a letter written to the church at Ephesus. And this church is a special church in Paul's life because he spends three years there. He plants this church, and he spends three years building this church. 
And there's a very special mention in the book of Acts of how he meets with the elders when he leaves there. And he basically is very, you know, he's, he's emotional that he's leaving them because he spent three years bonding with them. But he's also leaving them this very special treasure, this precious, precious uh, uh, thing that he has in the, in the church at Ephesus. And so he leaves them with some guidance and he leaves them. What we discover, what we learn is that Paul also leaves Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus at one point. And the letter, the, what's called 1 Timothy, so in the Bible we have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and the reason they're called that is not terribly sophisticated. It's because these are two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, and the first one is the one he wrote first, and the second one is the one he wrote second. And in 1 Timothy, which we're not going to look at today, in 1 Timothy he's writing a letter to Timothy because he's left him in Ephesus to pastor this church. It's like his first sort of big solo time, right? He's been traveling with Paul. He's Paul's beloved and faithful protege. And now Paul is leaving him here to pastor the church of Ephesus. And so he writes him a letter. And he writes him 1 Timothy. And that's why when you read the book of 1 Timothy, what you discover there is it's a lot of practical advice on how to pastor a church. Every young pastor should probably spend some time in this book because it's precisely that. He says, here's, how, here's what you need to do. Here's your responsibilities. Here's your roles. Here's what you do, Timothy. Here's how you pastor this church while I'm gone. And then four years pass. And it's very possible that Timothy and Paul do not see each other over the next four years for a couple of reasons. One is that Paul is very busy. The other is that Paul ends up in prison for the second time. Now, there's some argument about this, but it seems fairly solid. What seems to make the most sense is that Paul is in prison when he writes the book of Philippians earlier. And in that book, you'll read, he says things like, I am convinced I will be released. And in fact, he is. He's let out of prison at that point. It's after that that he leaves Timothy in Ephesus and then leaves to let Timothy pastor. In the book of 2 Timothy, it's been four years since Paul has seen Timothy and he's writing to him from prison. And at this moment, Paul is in this dark, dank, not pleasant prison, possibly being beaten on a regular basis, definitely in chains. This is not a, a simple and easy arrest. And it's clear from the book of 2 Timothy that Paul does not expect to make it out alive. He thinks this is it. He doesn't anticipate seeing Timothy or anyone again because he thinks that he will die after this is done. By the time of 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison, held captive by the Romans. He's anticipating his death, and indeed, we suspect that his death occurs shortly after this letter in A.D. 67, when he's beheaded by Nero. The truth is, as he's writing Timothy, it's an extremely difficult and unstable time for Christians in the Roman world. The emperor is a man named Nero, and historically, we know Nero, we know this to be true, not just from scripture, but outside sources, that Nero, from the moment he became emperor, gradually but steadily goes mad <laughs> that he is decreasing in his own stability he's becoming more and more crazy in fact there's a there's a big fire that happens in rome in AD 64 and you may have heard some people talk about rome burned by ne while nero fiddled and that's a reference to the idea that he was unable to control the fire it's probably a little bit unfair i think he did try to control the fire but he was unable to and it happened because of his incompetence because of his instability but he can't abide by the fact the fire was his fault, so he finds a scapegoat, and the scapegoat he finds is Christians. He says, Christians tried to overthrow Rome, and so they set Rome on fire. It's their fault. And from that moment forward, it's 
a huge understatement to say that Nero is increasingly unstable and is making the world a hard one for Christians. When I say he's making it a hard one for Christians, you know the stories of the Colosseums and the lions and the, the Christians that are being thrown to the lions for the entertainment of the masses. This is when that's happening. Nero kills Christians for sport. You may not know of the other stories, which seem, we don't know for sure, you know, that we can't find like evidence that this happened in exactly this way. But the weird thing about some of these other stories is how plausible they are, that they fit the mindset of Nero. They fit what we know about his craziness. Here's just one example. There's stories from a number of sources which tell us that at night, Nero would light the streets of Rome with torches. But these torches were comprised of humans that he would take Christians and tie them to a post and pour oil on them and set them ablaze. And as you walked through the streets of Rome, you would be surrounded by burning humans. This is the craziness of Nero. This is the instability. This is what I mean when I say it's an understatement to say he's making the world the hard one for Christians. And this is Paul gets caught up in this fervor of persecution and he gets thrown in prison. And that's probably why he doesn't suspect to make it out alive because Nero's not going to listen to reason or it doesn't matter. Paul is a, a big example for Nero to make. If he wants to stop the Christian growth, Paul is a good man to try it with. It doesn't work, but you can see why he would grab Paul. But here's Paul's concern. Paul's ready. He's fine. He knows where he's going. He knows he's going to be with the Lord. He's made peace with that. But he has a concern. And a concern is what happens to all his churches. <laughs> and a concern is what happens to Timothy. Timothy is still a young pastor. He's been at it four years and he's doing a fine job. But when he has questions, where does he go? He probably writes Paul. When he had questions before that, who did he ask? He asked Paul. Well, Paul's not going to be there anymore and it's going to get much harder. And Paul looks at the church in Ephesus, this special treasure that he has. And he looks at Timothy, this, this faithful protege that, protege that he has. And he, he worries. He says to himself, I need to make sure that Timothy will stay the course. This is what 2 Timothy is about. The entire letter of 2 Timothy is an exhortation to Timothy to be stable, to stay the course. In fact, you find throughout 2 Timothy phrases just like that. Fight the good fight, he says. Run the good race, he says. Finish the race well, he says. Even that phrase, finish the race well, implies that Paul knows Timothy himself may not be long for this world, young though he is. Paul doesn't know exactly what's coming, but he sees it's just going to get worse. And Paul won't be here to protect Timothy, and he won't be here to support Timothy, and he won't be here to help Timothy. And so he thinks to himself, what can I leave Timothy with so that he can run a good race, so that he can stand firm when the rest of the world around him falls apart. And so these are Paul's last words, knowing that hard times are coming for Timothy and the church in Ephesus. That's the context. You see the urgency? You get the feel? We're not going to read chapter 1 and 2. We're going to look at chapter 3. If you have a Bible and you want to join us, that's where we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And he says this, but mark this. Now, that's not, just, uh, that's not just unnecessary words. That is Paul's way of saying, okay, listen up. Hear this. These are some of my last words, Timothy. 
Mark this. This will happen. Note this. Watch this. As this happens, remember, I told you this. Mark this. These, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. This is crazy. It seems, I mean, listen to these words. This is Paul's concern. This is what Timothy and the church in Ephesus are going to be facing, says Paul. And on the one hand, you say, what a weird warning to have nothing to do with them, because why would Timothy ever have anything to do with people like this? People so blatantly arrogant, people so blatantly lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. Why would Timothy have anything to do with those people? But think back to Ephesians. He said there are people who are deceitful and scheming. And then notice at the end of this passage, what does it say? These people have a form of godliness. They don't come out of the gates looking like the devil. They come out of the gates with a form of godliness. They look persuasive. They look convincing. They look okay. Godliness literally is a word in scripture which means God is with you. It means a sense of living as if God is there. He says they they claim God. They'll speak of God. They'll have this form of godliness. They'll claim their arrogance is not just an arrogance because they're with God. They'll claim their priorities come from God. But Paul says they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In what ways do they deny its power? By living a life that doesn't require it, Right? If God were really with them, they wouldn't live lives like this. They wouldn't be like this. Paul says, look for the people who walk the walk. And be careful about these people who absolutely have no concern about actual godliness, but just want to look like they do. People are devious. That's one of the difficult points that Paul continues to make. People can be devious. They don't always look like we think they will look. We talked last week about how God looks at the hearts. And we want to look at the hearts, but we also talked last week about the fact that that's impossible for us, isn't it? (laughs) We can't really see into the hearts of people. Cultures shift and values change. In fact, some of these things that Paul says over time in Rome, they become marks of, of value. And I challenge you that even in our day, in our culture, some of these things are regarded as good. And when your culture around you says these things are good, and then Paul says have nothing to do with them, there's a countercultural push. And part of what Paul is saying to Timothy is the culture is increasingly going to become at odds and in opposition with Christian values and with Christ. And I need you to stand firm. And don't get swallowed up in that community. And don't get swallowed up in that society. I mean, look at this list. People will be lovers of themselves. Not only is that true today, probably true in every culture, but it's even true that there are people who say that is the highest end. Just love yourself and everything else comes from that. They say it is a value. For Christianity, to be Christianity, for us to stand firm, means we have to push against that culture. 
which says that number one is you and you are the center of the universe. We have to, like Copernicus, preach a revolution, which says everything does not revolve around you. Lovers of money. I'm a capitalist. But we live in a capitalist society and you can't tell me love of money is not a value in our world. You can't tell me that it, we don't at least, at the very least, wink at greed if we don't wholeheartedly embrace it at times. Boastful and proud. How many of our political and religious leaders are admired today specifically because of their proud, defiant, angry boasting? It's crazy. It has become a value. And Paul says it's not a value. It's not a Christian value. Disobedient to their parents. That is so quaint today, it's almost laughable that it's in the list, right? Obeying your parents, what, is that even a thing? <laughs> why, why do we even care if people do that? Ungrateful. I'm personally convinced one of the biggest symptoms of illness in America is how ungrateful everybody is. We're all so quick to rush to indignation and judgment and anger and offense. How many people are actually grateful for their lot in life? We could go on and on and on. And you can see that there is a push for these things to not only be acceptable, but be good. What Paul is saying to Timothy is that once upon a time in our world, Christianity was had a, even, even in the Roman world, had a somewhat respected place. People looked at Christians and admired the values that we had. They looked at Christians and respected our right to worship as we would. They respected and gave us the room. And it wasn't so hard for us to be who we are. But now, says Paul, that time is changing. And increasingly, for us to be who we are, we will have to push against the culture or be swallowed up by it. And I really think we're in a very similar position today. A few decades ago, it was normal to go to church. Everybody went to church. It's what you did. And the Christian values, whether they were lived or not, whether it was espoused hypocritically or really, nonetheless, the values that were espoused tended to be values of Christ. But increasingly, that isn't the case. And increasingly, within the church and outside of the church, both we have a culture which is turning from the stability of the values of Christ and instead embracing other values that the world has thrown at us. The church is not immune to that. How many leaders of churches follow these very things that Paul said to stay away from? How many of them are boastful and proud, lovers of themselves, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving? Too many. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to be that amazing individual who can stand in the middle of the culture and push against it and ignore it and be, be stable as the winds and the waves go over him that he can somehow, like Jesus walking on the water through the middle of a storm, he can somehow stand firm. And that's the call to us too. And that's the treasure we're given, but how? How does, it, how does it happen? How do we get there? How do we remain countercultural in the right ways? How do we stand for the values of Christianity and Christ 
as the culture becomes more and more alien to those very values. Paul goes on. He speaks of those, these people that Timothy's supposed to stay away from. He says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't believe that Paul is saying here that all women are gullible and loaded down by sins. He's talking about specific women. And let's take out the women for a second. I'm happy to have that argument with you later. I really don't think that's Paul's point. I think his point is there are people out there who are vulnerable to unscrupulous and devious leaders. There are people out there whose own sins get in their ways and whose own passions get in their way. And because of that, they're vulnerable to the person who comes along and says, I have the answers. Do we not see that from our political leaders and our religious leaders all the time? That they find those people, people. they find those people and prey on them. They find those people and prey on them those people who are vulnerable, whose own sins have confused them and lure them into following them, we do see it. I don't even need to name names because you can think of them. He says these people are oppressive and they are manipulating the vulnerable people, the people who aren't stable. So Timothy, you be stable and you protect those who need your protection. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. We don't need to go into detail. I'll just let you know that in the, before Paul, before Paul was even born, the tradition, it's not in scripture, but the tradition was that Janus and Jambres were the names of the magicians that opposed Moses when he came to set the Israelites free. So we have this picture of Moses coming in and the powerful members of the culture, the Egyptian culture to which he's coming, are, they're seen as powerful people and Moses stands in opposition to them and they are shown to be fools. And Paul is saying to Timothy, so also you. Stand firm. Trust God. And he will show these people to be the fools they are. That's what he says. He says, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. But Janus and Jambres lived for a lot of years and looked powerful. <laughs> says they won't get very far, but it could be a while. <laughs> he says to Timothy, the deceivers may look powerful, but you have to stand firm. Because when you do, you'll be vindicated over time. Because they shift with the culture. They shift with the wind. And the people that admire them will, will leave them at some point. He says, he speaks of this these, these people are vulnerable as always uh, learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And it makes me think of the scrambling. Really, we're all capable of being these vulnerable people. And it makes me think of the scrambling we do. We're desperate to find the next key, the key to success, the key to victory, the key to raising our kids, the key to being married, the key to happiness. We're desperate to find it. And we jump from book to book to book, from secret to secret to secret, from teaching to teaching to teaching, from guru to guru to guru, political, religious, or media. And we scramble for the next truth, and we're always scrambling for truth, but we're never learning anything. We're never coming to a real grasp of truth because there's no stability. There's no rock to stand on. It all shifts. It comes, and it goes, and it leaves. And Paul says, Timothy, don't be taken down with them. He says, stand your ground. But the question still is, how? <laughs> so far, we've talked about the importance and the benefit and the treasure of stability, but how? 
Where does the stability come from? How do we stand our ground? How do we maintain our integrity and our stability? How do we avoid always scrambling from truth to truth? How is it done? Well, Paul goes on. He says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a bad pep talk at this moment. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a reality. He says to Timothy, you watched me, and you know that part of my life involves suffering. And yet you saw me stay the course. Understand, says Paul, that in the coming days, everyone who believes in Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that may or may not apply across history, but I think to some degree it applies across history. Paul means it specifically right now, but I think there's always a level of persecution. I think we have to be careful of calling all persecution equal persecution. Persecution we, re we receive in America is vastly different from being lit as human torches. But there always will be a push against the Christian culture, against the Christian values. And, Tim, and Paul says, not only will that be true, but deceivers and deceivers will, will get worse. They'll deceive themselves more and they'll deceive others more and it'll just get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and at times, they may look like they're winning. I do think one of the minor points here is be careful who your heroes are. They don't have to be perfect, but how much compromise are you willing to put in to be part of the in crowd and part of the latest fashion and the latest fad? People flock too persuasive and charming people. Be careful who you follow when the rest of the crowd does. Paul was a great example for Timothy. Paul was a man who walked the walk when there was suffering and when there was persecution. He continued to have endurance and patience and love. In fact, he had all the things that are the opposite of the things he told Timothy to watch out for, right? Watch for those people. Find the people who walk the walk. As Christianity becomes more countercultural, there will be persecution. And while those who just deceive and take on the culture will be able to virtue signal and change their convictions at a moment's notice, what's so frustrating about the leaders who have no convictions is they can ride the waves as convictions change. One day the culture says this is right and that's wrong and this leader stands very firm and strong on that. And the next day the culture says, no, wait, that's wrong and this is right. And the leader stands very firm in a completely different place. But Paul, how? <laughs> David, how? How do we find this stability? And this is where I really want you to Mark this, as Paul would say. This is where I'm going to give you an answer that when you first hear it, depending on where you're coming from, depending on what your experience is, you might at first say, oh, is that where we're going? Because I don't know if I trust that. I don't know if I believe that. Because what I'm about to share with you is countercultural. It is something that our culture does not share. It in and of itself is a conviction that the culture pushes back against right now. But I ask you to bear with me. I ask you to follow this through and consider the possibility. Consider what it would be like if there was an authority you could look to that could give you stability of conviction when all around you, everyone else is being pushed here and there by every wind and every wave. He says this to Timothy. 
But as for you, finally, as for you, Timothy, all this is going to happen, but here's what you do. Continue what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Timothy, you've become convinced of some things. And you can cling to those convictions. You can be stubborn about those convictions, not because I tell you, but because you know from whom you learned them. And here Paul doesn't even mean him. We actually know from whom Timothy learned this. It was his mother and his grandmother. They taught him to respect the Holy Scriptures from infancy, says Paul. But notice it's not even just his mother and grandmother. It's the Holy Scriptures. And Paul says of the Holy Scriptures, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I think he starts here because this is the important point I want to make. It is not culturally in fashion. Even within the church, it is not culturally in fashion right now to speak of Scripture as completely reliable and trustworthy. It's definitely not in fashion in the rest of the world. In fact, it's become not even in fashion in the rest of the world to regard Scripture as even anything special. To regard it as even, sometimes it's regarded as outright foolish. It is not cultural right now to see Scripture as being the place that can provide us wisdom, the basket that we should put our eggs in to trust the wisdom that we receive. When we come up challenged by science and popular culture and the common sense of the day and our own rational reasoning, it is not culturally encouraged to lay all that aside and embrace Scripture. That's seen as dangerous. So I understand if that's where you are. It's hard to be challenged to oppose the predominant views of your culture. I do want to challenge that. And I want to start the way Paul does by saying this. Paul says to Timothy, trust in the Holy Scriptures because you know they made you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And I want to start by saying there is no logic. There is no reasonable progression from saying, I can trust Scripture to provide the gospel for me to teach me that I can trust in the Lord Jesus, but I'm going to dispense with everything else in Scripture. That's not a rational position. That's an emotional one. That's a preferential one. Why on earth do you believe what Scripture says about Jesus and about the gospel if you don't think Scripture comes from God? Why on earth do you believe that there's authority from Scripture to tell you how you can be a new creation and have eternal life if you don't believe the rest of Scripture comes from God? It's not reasonable to say, I'm going to pick from Scripture the things I like that already match my worldview and my emotional preferences, and I'm going to dispense with the things I don't like. That isn't actually rational. And Paul starts by saying, cling to the Scripture's that you've become convinced of because the primary point of scriptures is the gospel. But that does mean you have to acknowledge the authority that scripture has in your life. If it has authority to preach the gospel to you, then it has authority. He goes on and he says this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work work. Let me be super clear. 
about a couple of things. One is I personally do believe that Scripture is infallible. I personally do believe that the inspiration of God means that God has preserved it to present it to us in a way that it has infallible authority in my life. However, let me also be clear, not all of our focus group leaders happen to agree with me on that, and I'm okay with that. But what our focus group leaders do all agree on, what we all take as a basis for moving forward in our leadership as leading groups, what we all agree with is that Scripture has authority in our lives, and it has authority in your life. Why else do we read Scriptures? Why else do we study Scriptures when we want to find out how to live our lives? Because we believe it has authority in our lives. That doesn't mean you have to believe it's infallible as I do. That doesn't mean you have to see inspiration the same way I do. But the word God-breathed is a really interesting word. It's an interesting phrase. As we talked about last week, there's a definite connection in Scripture between the words for spirit and the words for breath. And weirdly, or perhaps not weirdly, perhaps preordained, this is true not only in Hebrew and in Greek, but in English as well. In fact, the word God-breathed is the literal rendering of the word inspired or inspirited. It's saying that God breathed into Scripture. Now, could translations, could interpretations, could other things make it so that all Scripture takes some effort to understand what its authority says? Amen and preach it, of course. But to recognize Scripture as having authority useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness is actually a huge treasure of the Christian fanatic. Because it means you have an authority which is not your own reasoning. You don't have to just figure it all out yourself. You don't have to wonder if the culture around you is speaking truth or not. You don't have to constantly be taken here and there by people who seem smarter than you or more persuasive than you or when the whole crowd is saying that. I've been reading an interesting book called Collective Illusions by by a man who runs a think tank, and they discovered that everybody lies in every poll all the time. <laughs> they discovered that people do this without even knowing they're doing it. And they figured out that there are ways, some of them time-tested going back decades, there are actually ways to take polls which are lie-proof. There are ways to do comparisons and things. There are tricks you can do to get people to give you the real answer that they themselves aren't aware of. And what they've discovered is that the reason people lie on polls is because we all say what we think everybody else believes. And what we don't realize is they are also saying what they think everybody else believes. And that when you use these methods which get beyond the ability to lie, what you discover is nobody believes that. <laughs> that, that we're all living these lives based upon these convictions we don't even personally hold. Because we think the kind of polarizing ideas that are thrown at us every day by the media are what everyone else actually thinks. What a weird way to live. <laughs> what a strange conundrum we've brought ourselves into. And Paul says there's an opportunity to have something to trust in an authority which is not yourself. Which is stable and time-tested. You know, Scripture dates back thousands of years. And it contains wisdom which has been proven time after time. And by definition, 
it tells us things that are not blinded by our current cultural blinders because it was written at a time that we don't have our current cultural blinders. It's a kind of truth which is outside our own cultural biases, and this gives it power to say things we don't often hear. I know there's a lot of arguments for why we shouldn't trust Scripture, and one of them, for example, is that Scripture itself is bound by cultural biases, right? It was written at specific times. But I want to challenge you. If you don't just want to listen to what other people tell you, and you want to read the Scripture yourself, and you read it carefully, what you will discover is that at every moment, Scripture pushes against the culture that it's in, not bows to it. When Paul writes about women, he does not express the views of women that the culture around him did, that they are property and meaningless. In fact, Paul, Paul pushes against that. When Paul writes about slavery, he does not express the cultural blinders around him that said slavery was acceptable and positive. He pushes against it. And this is true throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New. Things which to us may seem harsh and weird when we read them in the culture with which they're in, we'll see that they are actually countercultural to the culture in which they live. So Scripture not only speaks to our cultural blinders, but amazingly speaks to the cultural blinders of its own time, which is an impressive feat. So the treasure of the Christian fanatics is a purpose of delight. Oops, let's go back. An identity of substance and a stability of conviction which is born from recognizing the authority of Scripture. And this is an all-your-eggs-in-one-basket kind of thing, right? This is where it gets uncomfortable. You're like, if I really trust in Scripture, then does that mean I'm going to do stupid things that my brain says I shouldn't do? Fair question. And the answer is sometimes. Because sometimes your brain is stupid. <laughs> But I understand the fear. I get it. When I talk about a stability of conviction, the fear that we have is that we all know that in certain people at certain times, too much confidence and certainty is a horrible thing, right? Absolutely. I agree with you. In fact, that kind of thing can betray an arrogance and lead to a stubbornness which refuses to learn. This is more in line with the people Paul said to avoid who are boastful and proud, right? where they don't learn anything because they cling stubbornly to their convictions. But the beauty of the truly Christian fanatic is that he learns not to trust completely in his own reasoning. He never arrogantly says, I know this is true because I know it's true. He has recourse to a higher authority, and this higher authority itself cautions this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. One verse later, he says this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. See, there is a distinction between a stability of conviction and a man who is wise in his own eyes. It's fascinating. We don't have time to read it. But in Proverbs 26, he goes through and he talks about all the problems with a fool. I mean, it is a list of things that make you think, I'm so glad I'm not a fool and, and pity the fool. To quote somebody, most of you don't have any idea. It talks about how a fool is destructive to other people. To put a message in the hand of a fool is a bad idea, it says. It will destroy everyone. It talks about how a fool is self-destructive. He can't even take care of himself. List after list after list. A fool does this, a fool does that, a fool does this, a fool does that. By that time, as you read through it, I think Solomon's got you hooked. He's so smart because at this point you're thinking, whew, I'm so glad I'm not a fool. I'm not a fool. That is the best thing in the world. And then the very next verse says this. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Solomon, you got me. 
Here I was thinking I was wise in my own eyes. At least I wasn't a fool. I'm really wise. And then Paul says, well, you're in worse shape than the fool. There's nothing about a stability of conviction which says that we need to be arrogantly certain and wise in our own eyes. In fact, it is the higher authority of Scripture which encourages us not to lean on our understanding. And not leaning on our own understanding doesn't get us to this dangerous place where we do stupid stuff. It helps prevent us from doing stupid stuff because it builds into it a humility that we don't know. That we have cultural blinders that we have a hard time getting out of. See, being wise in your own eyes, that's not the conviction I'm talking about. We see a lot of examples of people, of people getting themselves in trouble through their prideful arrogance and stubborn confidence in their own wisdom. I want to wrap up tonight by giving you very quickly just a few examples, a few of the hundreds of historical examples that exist of the difference. Think about all those people that exist today and that you know who have been firm in their convictions. They've been maniacal in their confidence and it's led to danger and destruction to other people. That's wise in their own eyes. What you need to see is an example of a stability of conviction of people who could stand against the cultural biases they lived in. People who somehow were able to say, everything around me says that scripture's wrong, but I'm going to cling to scripture and see how they changed the world by that stability. Let's start with 1517, a young monk. Young monk in the Catholic world, a man of a, a, a degree of power as a monk. His name is Martin Luther. Most of you are familiar with the fact that he wrote a document called the 95 Theses, and then he hammered these on a door. What you don't know is that door is basically the community bulletin board. There was no bravery in putting it there. That's what you did. When you had a thought, you put it there. So he wrote this document of 95 Theses. He put it on the community bulletin board. And from that began what we ultimately call the Protestant Reformation. But what you may not know is that Luther's document was not motivated by a desire to start a reformation. It was not motivated by a desire to leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to help the Catholic Church. It was not motivated by a desire to start a movement. He simply wanted to point out a cultural blinder that his world had. Within his religious world, there were some cultural biases that people accepted were the way things were. And he said, I'm not so sure. There's two primary points throughout all the 95 Theses. And his first primary point is that it is the Bible and not man that is the central authority for all of us who are in the church. This in itself was a poke at the culture in which they lived. But he said everyone should have access to the Bible because that is our central authority. And starting from that standpoint, he said the problem is when I regard that as my central authority, it is countercultural to what my own church is doing today. One of Luther's big gripes was the way that the leadership in the Catholic Church at that time were oppressing particularly the poor. The way they oppressed the poor was to make them feel guilty about their sins and then tell them, if you pay me as a representative of the church enough money, I can make sure God forgets about your sins. That sounds amazing to us. So crazy. How could anyone believe that? Understand, this is the culture in which Luther lived. Everyone believed that. Everyone. It is amazing that Luther saw around it. It is amazing that Luther looked at it and said, is that really right? And the only reason he did was not because of his own reasoning, because his own reasoning was steeped and immersed in the, in the culture he lived. It's because scripture didn't say that. 
The second point in his primary, 90, primary point in his 95 Theses is that man's salvation comes not by works. It cannot be purchased by what we do or by what we spend <laughs> or give. It can only be received as a grace of God by faith. And where did he have the room to stand on this? Because he looked to Scripture as the authority, and that was the stability that he had that others missed. Let's skip ahead 200 years. In 1784, a young British parliamentarian, a, a very persuasive orator in the political worlds, a man named William Wilberforce, became a believer. After having been in the parliament for four years, he became a believer and he became fanatical enough about Christ to start to wonder about something which was ubiquitous in the world in his day, something which only very few even thought about ending, something which was so normal and so worldwide that the culture accepted it as the norm it, they even saw it as fashionable. It was a status statement. It was important to the economy of every country in the world. And it was political suicide to oppose because nobody did. There were a few voices, a few radical people, a few other fanatics, but nobody in politics. But William Wilberforce, Wilberforce like Martin Luther beside him, was able to see past the powerful and popular ideas of his day precisely because of his commitment to Scripture's authority. It was the book of Genesis that to him said, this thing that we have is wrong. This idea that we cling to is of our culture, and it doesn't matter that the whole world accepts it. Scripture is my authority. Instead of quitting politics to become a minister, which was his first thought when he got saved, he decided he would use his political influence, such as it was, to change the entire world. Some of you might know what his cause was. Anybody of you in this room know who William Wilberforce is? The abolition of slavery. William Wilberforce, and to us it seems so obvious, right? Of course, everybody who's smart was in favor of the abolition of slavery. You have to understand how ubiquitous it was in the world at this time. Every country in the world engaged in it. Every country thought it was just the way things worked. You had strong people and weak people, and the strong people could enslave the weak people. And because they were enslaved, it was proof that they were less than human and that made it okay. And William Wilberforce says, when I read Genesis, it doesn't say that. It says we're all made in the image of God. Something's wrong. You know, he is widely recognized as the man who started the abolition of slavery worldwide. He is seen as the first domino or the first person to tick the first domino, which was the United Kingdom's slavery and from there the rest of the dominoes were kind of obvious but had he not done what he did one can question whether we would have ever seen past our cultural blinders to understand how evil slavery was it took him persistence and decades of relentless fortitude it didn't happen quickly and all the while he was constantly mocked and labeled guess what a fanatic <laughs> And finally, in 1833, he led English to abolish slavery. And without his conviction to scripture, it's hard to see how such decades-long fortitude could have been. This act of England no doubt lent courage to other fanatics like John Adams in America, another fanatic who argued strenuously for the abolition of slavery. He wanted it written into the Constitution. And while there were not enough fanatics in our founding fathers at the time, the compromises that were made at that moment led ultimately to our civil war, which led ultimately to our abolition of slavery, just a few years after England's. And once England and America had, had drawn their line in the sand and abolished slavery, it really was kind of inevitable that the rest of the world followed. And the rest of the world did follow. 
William Wilberforce brought down the entire practice of slavery thanks to his dependence not on his own wisdom or his culture's wisdom, but on that of Scripture. Last example, in the 1950s, a young fanatical black Baptist minister was painfully and personally aware of the injustice and the race of racism in America. And he began to seek ways to change the world and bring about civil justice for all people, regardless of social structure or race. Now, at this time, our culture was split between those who saw the racism and oppression of black people and those who either didn't see it or didn't care. And it would be easy and not so much a, a push, not so much countercultural for, for Martin Luther King Jr., because that's, of course, who we're talking about. It would have been not so much a push against culture for him to stand on the side of those who sought to eliminate racism and, and oppression. Of course, this was very personally connected to where he was in his culture, in his world. Of course, that was bad. But what's interesting is as he began to seek ways to change the world, what he did notice it was that among all his contemporaries, the approach to change was one of violence. And Martin Luther King Jr. said, what I see in Scripture is that civil justice cannot be brought about by uncivil violence. And he began to preach what he called and borrowed from other people in the world who were doing this, what he called nonviolent protests. And this is where his countercultural moment is. This is where he pushed against the culture because when he began to preach nonviolent protest of the racism that exists, guess what? Neither side liked him at first. <laughs> Obviously, those who didn't see racism thought he was too radical, and those who thought violence was the answer didn't think he was radical enough. How did he stand? How did he manage to weather that? and become an, a movement for change in our culture, which is still unwinding to this day. You know how he did it? You may not have known that Martin Luther King Jr. was a black Baptist minister, but he was. You may not have known that he professed the reason for his convictions came solidly from the scripture that he saw of his Lord. You may not have realized that all those teachings which we listened to with this great oration that he had read like sermons filled with scriptural references to back up his points. These are just three examples of people who had a stability of conviction in the midst of cultures that were shifting. Knowing that we can cling to wisdom which comes not from ourselves but from another authority can provide a great deal of stability through all the changing philosophies and intellectual fashions of a constantly shifting culture. It is scripture that has allowed people like William Wilberforce, Martin Luther, and his namesake, Martin Luther King Jr., to speak and act with authority against the cultural biases of the days. Imagine what cultural blinders we all wear. You know what? You can't. Right? <laughs> you think you know. But what's interesting, when you think you know what the cultural blinders are, it's usually just because some part of your culture has caught onto it and they're already moving that way, and so you, they're not so blind anymore. But what if we could go 100 years in the future and look back at all the arguments and yelling of people on other opposing sides of every issue and all the convictions we espouse, what would we see that would be so obvious and clear from a 100 years' vantage point that we would say, wow, they were dumb. They were immoral. Boy, did they get that wrong. I don't know. <laughs> Neither do you. But... What if we were able to appeal to an authority which was outside of our cultural blinders? What if we were able to look at something and say, even though this doesn't make sense to me because I am mired in my culture, I will trust it as a higher authority in my life. 
then what change could one of you fanatics actually bring about? What change could you actually drive because you trust in the authority that Scripture has in your life? Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and a lever big enough and I can move the world. Well, Scripture is the place to stand. Jesus says it's that rock, that solid rock that we can stand on. And the lives we live under that authority, that's the lever. And we can move the world. And nobody but the Christian fanatic has this treasure. Where else do we grab our stability from? Nowhere. Except from the stability of conviction that comes from Scripture. Look, you may have reasons about why Scripture is trustworthy. And let me just tell you that I am not somebody who says that just because someone else told me that. There are so many people in this world who will tell you there's so many problems with Scripture. It's inconsistent. It's culturally bound. It's, if the translations are terrible, that you know, the, even the original manuscripts we have are so far away, they're bad. They say all those things, and most of the people who say those things have not read the Scripture cover to cover. They have not done any actual research. That is just the fashionable words to come out of our mouths. I have read the Scripture cover to cover multiple times. I have studied as well as I know how the historical veracity and reliability. And I can just tell you that when it comes to the, the documentary evidence, the science of documentary evidence, Scripture passes with flying colors vastly better than any other ancient document in the world. When it comes to historical veracity, contrary to what you may have heard, it stands very well. When it comes to internal consistency, stop listening to people who haven't actually read the whole thing to tell you whether it's internal consistent and start asking people who've read it over and over, and they'll tell you it's amazingly consistent. And as for philosophical wisdom, nothing greater. All I want to say is it's no fool who gives time to consider deeply the claims of Scripture to be inspired by God. Let's just close with a reminder of this last verse of Ephesians 4 that he says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. I do want you to consider that last line. And if you're worried about what happens if you put all your eggs in the scripture basket, will you end up being radical in a way which is harsh and mean? Then I want to tell you, no, not if you do it honestly. Because Paul tells us there's no incompatibility between being trusting in the authority of scripture and being loving. On the contrary, he says that if you are trusting in the authority of scripture, you will be loving. And if you are genuinely loving, you will be following the authority of scripture. Now, it's possible your understanding of Scripture and your understanding of love could sometimes cause tension. But rest assured that they don't actually conflict. I was at a pastor's conference not so long ago in which some people were concerned that they were trying to push back against, as I agree they should, this idea that Scripture has no authority in our lives. But they said something that made me chuckle, and I actually brought it up and said, do you realize what you just said? They said at this pastor's conference, we want to be people who are unapologetically scriptural. And I thought, amen. And then they said, and also we'll be loving. And I thought, why do we have to add and also we'll be loving? Are they saying that their per perspective of being unapologetically scriptural means that we won't be loving? Because then they're not understanding what I understand about being unapologetically scriptural. I think unapologetically scriptural and unapologetically loving are the same. Consider Wilberforce, Luther, and King Jr. All their enterprises reflected this love, didn't they? Now, at the time, people thought who opposed them said they weren't loving, said they were mean and narrow-minded and even bigoted in some cases. 
but we can see, can't we? With a little clarity that in fact it actually reflects love. So I think if you're worried about your fanaticism and the authority of scripture, it's fair to ask yourself about yourself and other fanatics. It's fair to ask, is it reflecting truth in love? And if it's not, it's fair to ask whether their commitment to scripture is awry or their commitment to love is awry, but somewhere they're missing both. We'll just close with this benediction, which we've already read. But as for you, children of God, continue what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.